My name's James Trubini, this is my show, and today we are going down Old Mexico Way once again as I relive my Lucha-inspired youth. It's back in the day, on a Sunday evening, on the veritable Galavision channel, on the, uh, uh, what was the Sky uh, satellite, the Astra satellite, I should say. You used to get four hours of Lucha Libre, it was AAA and it was CMLL, as it became at the roundabout the time. And a couple of weeks ago, myself and John Dinsdale looked at the first Triple Mania to kind of gauge where AAA had got in its first two years in the business. And I thought it would be nice to look at what CMLL, or as it was known then, the organization was EMLL and the promotion was CMLL, they were dying in 19, doing in 1992 that caused everyone to leave to join AAA. And who better to come discuss this momentous business event Mr. Ben Spindler, how are you, sir? And welcome back to the Shreepany Show. Well, thank you very much, James. Yeah, um, great to be back. Great to be back. Although I will say that there probably are about a thousand people that would be better to talk to about this, <laughs> frankly. But, um, but I'll do my best. <laughs> so CMLL, as it is known today, is literally the oldest major promotion on earth. It has been going for a very, very long time. I was looking through the cage match uh, listings to find this show. There are 102 pages of cage match results for CMLL, which will tell you how long they have been going. And I picked more or less a random show that I could find on YouTube. And the great Roy Lucier, the man who has archived so much wrestling down the years, uh, that has pretty much kept the Troopany show going for about the last four years, um, <laughs> has started to post every CMLL show he has in his video collection. And... I picked this one because it had a nice main event. I thought that it was really interesting. It comes from the 17th of July, 1992. It's an Arena Mexico show because they only really do shows at Arena Mexico these days and have done for quite some time. And CMLL is known as the conservative lucha organization. And none of this wild and craziness, only every once in a while. And there was plenty of wild and crazy in this later on on the card. But what are your thoughts on this on CMLL, Ben, as a company like as the overall philosophy of the company from what you've seen of it and from what you've heard about it. So I haven't, uh, this is, I'd be perfectly honest, this is the first time I've ever watched a CMML show. Um, so it's great to be introduced to it because I've never watched one before. Um, I did a little bit of pre-reading though, and I, I was aware that it was supposed to be the more conservative of the two. Um, I'm also aware that it was the oldest promotion. I listened to your uh, episode, obviously, a few weeks back about Triple Mania, where you think mm -hmm. you discussed that. And um, and and so I so I didn't know what I was going to be expecting, to be honest, going into it. I thought what I was hoping for, if I'm honest, was something really slow paced because I heard the words conservative and I thought, <laughs> OK, OK, bring it on. Let's let's see these guys doing like endless arm locks, like <laughs> chin locks, all kinds of stuff that's just going to be like really maybe that's not fair. Maybe I was just hoping for lots and lots of mat wrestling and then yeah. the odd the odd bit of flair if you see what i mean um and then having watched it i will say that i don't think they are particularly conservative not from, <laughs> not from watching this particular show i thought it was quite out there in, in places um and not at all as 
conservative anyway, as I had expected. And I guess everybody's got a different definition of that word. And I guess it does <laughs> depend on where you personally are looking at the world from. But uh, yeah, it, it's, it wasn't particularly conservative, although there were some there were some parts of it where i felt like they they should they they could have been a bit more a bit less repetitive shall i say yes i would agree with you that is my kind of bugbear with lucha in the sense of i think well i mean listening to daniel bryan maybe not wrestling and he was saying the thing with lucha you've got to remember with lucha is the two things that get you over are your introduction and your outfit, which is the reason why Daniel Bryan never got over in Mexico. Yeah. <laughs> because he's never particularly put an awful lot of time or thought into his outfit before he got to WWE. And his intro is, well, it's, it's a bloke from Seattle, isn't it? And that's about as much as you get, really, with Daniel Bryan. Um, so I just want them to do a bit of everything, James. I want them to come down have a fabulous <laughs> entrance with great music. I want them to look fantastic with a crazy mask. And then when they get in the ring... I want them to be great as well. So I just want them to be able to do everything. I know that is very selfish. I know that I'm basically <laughs> looking for perfection. But, you know, you can, you've can you got to aim for the stars. Your perfect Lucha show would involve everything happening all at once. <laughs> not, not everything happening at once. I just have all the good stuff happening at once. <laughs> I think this is the issue is because... The way the Lucha matches work, if you've never watched Lucha before, essentially your undercard, much like, say, a Japanese wrestling promotion, is full of six-man tags or tag wrestling to get your groups over and to like outline what's going to happen on future cards. There are little issues that go on in those matches. And then you get to the main events and the pace drops off tremendously and you have your technical matches. But obviously in those trios matches, there's a lot of similar stuff because they all go hell for leather for yeah. about 20 minutes. And therefore, the, there's a little bit of science to start with, but you're cracking off into the Tope Suicidas straight away, more or less. In fact, this first match that we saw definitely went off into the Tope Suicidas straight away. Mm. But when you think about the people who are involved, they are actually living legends of professional wrestling. Yeah. But we kind of know them in different formats where what you like, as, as far as wrestling is concerned, is much more presented that way, isn't it? Yeah, I think um, I, I think also, to be honest, this was, as you, as you know, James, I, I a couple of years back or more, probably more now than a couple of years back, I uh, went through a period of watching a lot of Chikara. So yeah. I kind of got into Lucha in a way that I had never previously thought I would. Um, I really enjoyed it. Actually, the big part of it was really enjoying the six man tag matches and really getting into the way they work and the speed and the fact that they do go into those um kind of big spots almost immediately sometimes i just i think occasionally this just felt very messy uh i think that was my biggest issue and when you couple that with the fact that i'm new to the new to the, the promotion and you couple it with the fact that i don't really know who some of these guys are i mean i was surprised by how many people i did know who they yeah. are mm -hmm. but at the same time i was like, i don't know who like the los intocables team are like pieroth i think has been in a royal rumble before but that yes. was it Mm -hmm. um so i'm like so you combine those two things and then on top of that you combine the fact that i have no idea what the commentary is saying <laughs> so because obviously it's in spanish and i yes. am one of those ignorant english people that don't speak <laughs> any other language and so i'm just like watching this kind of like 
what is going on? Like, what is happening? <laughs> and uh, so I just was hoping for something a bit more tidy. That's why I think I was hoping for that conservative kind of slower pace, because I just thought that I can something I can watch where you've got two, you know, perhaps light heavyweights, as we got here with Nismark and El Sartanico in the mat, in the show. Yeah. Um, I can I can concentrate on just two people wrestling, trading holds, and then kind of get swept up in the story of of the match. Unfortunately, that didn't happen as often as I'd hoped it would. Oh, that's fair enough. I can understand that. We shall get to the matches. The actual card opened with a match that isn't on the recording, and we, as usual, will post the YouTube video underneath this recording. Uh, it was Expectro de la Utratumba, Expectro Junior, and Fierro. And they defeated Los Metallicos, Bronce, Oro, and Plata. Um, Oro, unfortunately, would not be much longer with us much longer. He passed away the following year after an accident in the ring. Because I remember that, because there was a tribute to him on a AAA show, funnily enough. Because um, obviously all of the AAA guys were friends with him because of working for CML at, at one point. So uh, and he was considered quite the, you know, he, he was a rising star at the time. That was a dark match. But the actual opening match that we saw, saw Bastita Salve, Felino, and Negro Cassus defeat Blue Demon Jr., El Dandy, and Ultimo Dragon. Yes, that's Ultimo Dragon. And yes, that's Negro Cassus. Negro Cassus, of course, is probably more recognizable to New Japan fans as the guy that has been in several Best of Super Junior tournaments and tends to get a lot of guest slots on American shows. And Ultimo Dragon is, you know, Ultimo Dragon, founder of Dragon Gate, uh, if essentially one of the founding fathers of Japanese lucha, former IWGP heavyweight champion, and of course the J-Crown champion with the nine belts of the famous photograph that even gets used outside of wrestling memes because other people find it funny too. Yeah. <laughs> um, and this match was, I, it was kind of like a case, I think what you said in point, it was, there was clearly the fact that a lot of good guys in this, who were great and would have great careers, but it wasn't the tidiest of wrestling matches. If you try, it, it got the story over. I understand what was happening, but it it was too much stuff going on for the guys involved. If that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, I I I'm glad you understood what was happening because I didn't have a bloody. Clue, <laughs> um, I don't know whether or not that was because I I don't know what that was because of. Like, I I was thinking when I. This match came out. I was like, okay, I know who Blue Demon is. I know who El Dandy is. I know who Ultima Dragon is. Felino is obvious who he is because he's a cat. That makes perfect sense to yeah. me. <laughs> and uh, Negro Casas, I've, I've, I've absolutely heard of, although I don't think I'd seen him wrestle before. And in the first, the first six minutes of this match, or the first seven minutes, what, however long the first fall is, yeah, I thought this is this is really good. I'm going to enjoy this. It's really fine. It was a really tidy thing. They all kind of paired off, did their little bits with their kind of opposite number. Uh, the stuff between Kazas and Ultimo Dragon was just oh, this this is quality. Yeah. And I was instantly like, okay, this Kazas guy can go. I like him a lot. Yeah. Um, but uh, but then after the first fall, it just fell apart. The whole thing <laughs> fell apart. I didn't know what was going on. And what was weird, the first fall ended with what I thought seemed to be two falls. <laughs> which right. Really weird. Okay. So, yeah, we should explain Lucha rules. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so you don't need to tag out. Okay. You could just roll to the outside and the other person can get in. Okay. That's fine. Yeah. And as far as pinfalls is concerned, best of three, four matches for most Lucha matches and in the first fall, uh, sorry, you only have to pin the captain of the team. You can pin the others, right. but it, 
you can either pin the other two or pin the captain of the team to get the winning pin for. And, of course, anyone could be in the ring at any one time. And, of course, as soon as you pin somebody, they're eliminated, so they're not really considered in the ring anymore. So, therefore, they can just lay there screaming and bleeding while you pin the other guys. All so, makes sense now, James. Yes. All makes sense. So, so that, <laughs> I knew all of the rules apart from that. <laughs> and so, that was so important to this first fall because it was like, hang on, wait a minute. I'm sure, <laughs> I am sure that Dragon just got the pin on the Salva- Salvaje guy. Yeah. And then, and then, he, then he made Felino submit. I was like, hang on, wait a minute. What? I know it's two out of three falls, but this appears to be two falls in the same one. What's going yeah. on? Yeah, now yeah. I understand. <laughs> yes, so it's like I think Negro Cassus and Ultimo Dragon were the cap or Blue Demon were the captains of the teams. Right. So therefore, if you'd pinned Negro Cassus straight away, you would have won instantly. But which is again is one of those things when you don't have commentary, it doesn't help because um, it just looks really confusing. It's like why are you continuing? You've already won. Um, but yes, that's 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 basically what happens. And then, of course, there's also like how many people you can pin plays into the story because you've humiliated them if you pinned all three of them, um, which is obviously what the Rudos try and do in the next fall because they want to destroy their opposition. Well, it's obvious now that you've said it. Um, it wasn't yes. what I was watching. No. <laughs> <laughs> so this is why. So this is one of the reasons why it was kind of confusing to me is because I didn't know what happened in that first fall. But then, as I say, in the second fall, things break down and they all start wrestling outside the ring. They start mm. fighting each other outside the ring, brawling and all, all kinds of stuff. And you have to factor in the production value, which isn't amazing. And also the fact that the, the quality of the recording isn't amazing. Yes. Um, this is VHS from 1992. Yeah, exactly. So. <laughs> you factor those two things in, plus all the things I've already mentioned about my ignorance and my inability to understand what's going on. <laughs> and I'm like, goodness knows what's happening now. Uh, it just wasn't very easy to follow at all. Um, no. because of those things. And, it, you know, that, again, partially that is because of all the <laughs> facts, as I said, it's not necessarily about the quality of what we're seeing. Um, and, yeah, so I, I was quite confused all the way through. Okay, well, tense weapon is, if the Technikos get the first fall, which they tend to do, mm. the Rudos do tend to get to war breaking. And uh, let's be honest, a mix of absolutely ancient professional wrestling referees uh, some of whom are who are knocking on 60 and 70 years old and can't move particularly very well, who don't see all the action, and very skilled Rudos who can hide cheating very well. Also aided by the fact there's at least two Rudos referees who tend to favour the bad guys. Right. Which will become part of the story later on in the show. Um, so they tend to s- turn their backs at inopportune moments um, because they may or may not be on the take of the Rudos. Yeah, I think I picked up on that later in the yes. show. Yes. Um, but I uh, and I and I obviously having heard what you guys were talking about when it, when it, you talked about Trophmania, uh, Trophmania, I yeah. was aware that that existed that there were Rudolph yeah. referees. But I kind of I just in this this particular match anyway, I just thought it got very messy in the last couple of falls. Yeah. It wasn't uh, it wasn't to my taste. Yes, that's fair enough. I think this this is it's like. It was trying to kind of portray the Bestia Salvier was a bit of a coward and willing to let Felino and Negracasas do all the work, which is kind of really what was what was happening. Um, of course, Al Dandy is Bret Hart's greatest challenger to uh, the WCW US Championship, I believe, down the years. <laughs> See it Bret in there for you somewhere, though. <laughs> good, good stuff. Love it. <laughs> but yeah, I think this is is it kind of a classic 
lucha opener kind of loads of action kind of keep try and keep you interested and it's a basic nuts and bolts lucha match if you understand the rules of lucha libre which I probably should have explained a bit more to you before we started this adventure. Well, I think it was fair to assume that I knew some of this stuff. I, and I, as I said, I did know about the Lucha tags. I did know about like the three out of falls, two out of three falls stuff. I just didn't know that the first fall you had to pin the captain or two of the opposition side. Yes, yes. And again, it's not... See, see kind of like... The, it's one of those things like there's, there's not many stipulation matches in Lucha Libre where things get changed around too much. There is a stipulation match at the end of this uh, show, but generally speaking, even then, it's fairly simple. It's still under the same rules. They don't have cage matches very often um, or anything like that. So, you know, the rule changes don't get talked about because it's, it's just the same rules. Mm-hmm. Um, right. The next match William featured Atlantis, El Rio de Jalisco Jr., and Solomon Grundy, and they defeated Los Inotacables. Inotacables. Jacques Maté, Mascara, and Pierre Roth Jr. by disqualification. First of all, it amazed me there was a disqualification. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But this was, again, just kind of your standard six-man lucha match with a big bloke called Solomon Grundy in it. Yeah, I like this better. Yeah. Um, I think because of Solomon Grundy, it made Mm. me think, like, I could be a wrestler. If if this guy is, if this guy is, I could be one. No problem. Not that he was bad. Like, but he was just lovely and big, and like one, no one was pretending that he was a, a kind of warrior of any kind. He just, he's just there because he's really big. <laughs> that's what they brought him along for. It's like, oh, that guy's really big. Yeah, chuck him in, chuck him in. We'll call him Solomon. <laughs> it's perfect. Um, uh, and also, I just think that the uh, maybe it was just I found this easier to follow. Uh, they did the same again. The state, the first fall was quite tidy. Things broke down for the second fall a little bit, but they came back together, which I really um, appreciated. And I followed the end, which was really important because the end, obviously, as you said, it ends in a DQ. Yeah. And, um, and that's because of the fact that the one of the Rudos pulls the referee in the way of Solomon Grundy's avalanches. Yeah. Um, and therefore gets disqualified. But I understood it. So that was lovely. <laughs> <laughs> also... People got disqualified after a ref bump. Mm. You can tell this was 30 years ago. (laughs) (laughs) It was a ref ref bump that was deliberate now. Come on. Yeah, this is true, but it is like, you know, you'd have to run a referee over with a car these days to get disqualified. (laughs) I'd like to see it, James. I'd like to see it. Yeah, I just just preferred it. It was just a bit more kind of followable. Um, Yeah. And I really, as I said, I, I kind of really got into the idea that that because Sol- I think Solomon Grundy just stands out so much because you've got all these guys in masks around him in the main anyway. And then there's just this big, big bloke. And I don't know if he's I don't know if he's Mexican or, or, or where he's from or what his career was. But I, I was like, I could I could do this. I could actually do this myself. <laughs> He was from Kentucky, and he had a couple of matches, uh, looking at his cage match profile, he had a couple of matches for the World World Council Wrestling Association, which I think was an independent in the South, and went on to the USWA, I think was probably the biggest North American, sorry, I shouldn't say North American, because Mexico is in North America, CML will be his biggest North American promotion, Uh, USWA's biggest US promotion. Um, But didn't spend an awful lot of time anywhere, really. I think it looked to me like he was doing 
doing it as a weekend job. And probably I would also think if it's, it, it may have done a lot of stuff that hadn't made it to cage match because these are small promotions. And there was plenty of people at the time who were making a reasonable left living working on weekends with a job in the week, doing shows in the middle of nowhere and yeah. just getting payoff, small payoffs from that and keeping the rand in for the big shows when they needed them. And so it's quite, and in his attraction, isn't he? He's a bit like Andre the Giant. He's not, he's going to stand out in Mexico because Mexican wrestlers don't look like him. <laughs> when, when people see Solomon Grundy, you are going to be in for it with people when, by comparing him with Andre the Giant. I mean, come on. I'm that... not, yeah. <laughs> I'm not suggesting he's going to like, you know, headline WrestleMania. I'm just saying he's an attraction, a bit like Andre the Giant was an attraction wrestler in the, in the, in the, um, uh in the uh the territory era that's the phrase i'm looking for <laughs> yeah <laughs> i mean did you say wc did you say wcwa yes so that would be world class yes i think so that is that uh, is the governing body for world class yes wrestling. it would be world class yeah it'd be world class in dallas area at least um certainly and uswa of course was dallas as well because it was Dal- the dallas and memphis office combined when memphis bought out dallas yeah, yeah. Uh, no, it's it's it's, inter- it's interesting to me that a guy like this, who looks the way he does, and not 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 getting on his back or anything, but he's not he doesn't look like an athlete at all. Um, and I've never heard of him before, and yet he's an American wrestler. He's not like wasn't born in Mexico, didn't come up. I assume didn't come up through the Mexican system. Mm. And he here he is wound up in front of goodness knows how many thousands of fans in Mexico City on on Mexican national television. I find that really fascinating. Yeah, there's a, we've noticed that in Japan, like there are wrestlers in like American wrestlers who never had any American career whatsoever, as far as we can tell, but will just turn up on major cards. Um, there was a guy; it must have been a Canadian guy, and I can't remember his name now. But he was on the first FMW uh, anniversary show at Kawasaki Baseball Stadium, and he was pretty good. And he was tagging with Chris Jericho, right. And it was like me, I think I can't remember, maybe me and Marcus watched it. It was like, this guy was really good. What happened to him? <laughs> <laughs> Just disappeared. And like, I, you look, look at his cage match career and it like ends like two weeks after that show. I was going to say, I bet he just put on a mask and started wrestling in CML, yeah. I expect. That's what happened. Possibly, yeah. That's just, it could be Atlantis for all we know. <laughs> so I understand that Atlantis as well is, is a pretty big name. Yeah, uh, Atlantis has, has been had a solid career for, since 1983, and he's still wrestling. He's coming up on his 40th anniversary in a couple of years' time. The, um, weird, th- the weird thing is for me is all these people that I've heard of is nearly all from Pro Wrestling Illustrated when I used yeah. to read it back in like 96, 7, and 8. And so obviously this isn't that far um uh before 1998 so i'm kind of like it's not surprising i would recognize some of the names but i'm also aware i I was aware that atlantis was still going and was probably still a headliner so um that's crazy yeah he he's known as he's known for his mask versus match mask matches he's like the most successful mask taker in lucha history i think or that's kind of his promotion and he turned rudos in the early 2000s so he he, uh, he um, changed to, from his traditional blue and white attire to red and blue red and black attire, and then they had a random draw tag team tournament, and he got drawn with his old Technicos tag partner. So he went back to his uh, being a Technicos just for the tournament. <laughs> <Not> <laughs> and when he goes 
when he does the uh, CML Alto, the Fantastic Mania tour, when they do happen, obviously they're not happened for the last couple of years because of COVID, but when they do the Fantastic Mania tour in New Japan, he goes as a as a Technicos because he's known better in Japan as a Technicos than as a Rudos. So he goes in his blue and white gear just for a couple of weeks, wrestles with the Technicos, back to Mexico, he's a Rudos again. <laughs> Here's a question for you, and you may not know the answer, and there may not be an answer, which is probably why. If you if you would if you didn't know the answer, that would be why, because there isn't one. Um, obviously, the Technicos and Rudos, I get it. They're, that's the babyface and the heels. Yeah. But the difference here in in Mexican wrestling is that they acknowledge the existence yes. of Technicos and Rudos. So what's the what's the backstory? What's the what's the what is the kind of universal principle that this has been based on? I don't know. I honestly don't know. I couldn't tell you. I and again, it's. I think you've, we've we've discussed this before in the early days of the Troopany show when we first looked at Lucha. It's like, like it. They're still kind of. They're not as strong kayfabe companies as they used to be, but the, there is still a lot of belief in the fans. You watch a Triple A show or a CMLL show, the fans really do believe they are fully in on what is going on in the ring. Mm. And and they love their Technicos and they they dislike their Rudos extremely, but yeah, but equally it's kayfabe. But we acknowledge these are the good guys and these are the bad guys. Mm. Which which I guess American wrestling. Uh, I'll, I'll keep wanting to say North American wrestling, but you're absolutely right, James. Is this is obviously in North America, um, but American wrestling kind of acknowledges, not explicitly. But implicitly acknowledges that there are heels and baby faces yeah. by having them in different kind of dressing rooms, for example, or by having them always never fighting each other, basically. Yeah. Other than on very rare occasions. Whereas here they actually do explicitly say those words. And so I just found it interesting and wondered yeah. what that what where that came from. I will I will do some research and find out. And next time you're on, we can talk about that. <laughs> I might I'd be, not I'd be fascinated to hear about that. I will I will see what we can find out. I'm not I'm not gonna like make you watch another lucha show though. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? I don't I don't mind. It, 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 you know, don't get me wrong, this wasn't I didn't I didn't hate this at all. I just I just was like the first match I just found a little bit like what the hell's going on. <laughs> Uh, we should probably talk about. We've talked about the the well, Ray uh, Ray Delisco as well was a big joy, though it's not a bigger name in North America because I don't. That's North America. I've done it now. Not as big a name in the US uh, because he just he wasn't he didn't break through in the same way as Atlantis did or Negro Casas did because obviously Negro Casas had a New Japan career and I, I don't think he he didn't go with the other luchadors like WCW and WWE. Um, though his brother, Negro Cassis' brother, was heavy metal, who did go to both. And um, uh, Negro Cassis' dad was Pepe Cassis, who was the babyface, the, the Technicos referee at AAA. He went over to AAA, whereas Negro Cassis stayed in CMLL. Uh, but yeah, uh, El Rio de Lisco, again, was another big name in, in Mexico at the time, and apparently still wrestling, according to his cage match wow. uh, thing. And he's, um, he's 61. <laughs> do you think there's any chance that given that we know that Kazas and Atlantis are still wrestling is any chance that Mexican wrestling has struggled to build new stars um, yeah funnily enough <laughs> <laughs> they seem to come up with them though I mean you know there's the uh, people like Bandido and stuff but even then Bandido got to be a big star because he left CMLL and kind of went his own way. He decided to go to try and learn different things because 
he kind of figured out that if I just wrestle the CMLL style, I'll be like everybody else in CMLL. So how am I going to stand out? Which is, yeah. f- <laughs> I'm probably being, I'm probably being unfair to be honest because it's it's a trend across the world. I think, yeah, People, um, wrestlers just wrestling for longer. Excuse me. Um, it, because obviously, you know, in WWE, is a lot of hay is made of the fact that they're. Their essentially their entire roster is over 30, what, 35. Um, <laughs> and that's not really any different anywhere else. Like Impact Wrestling, of the one show I've seen this year of theirs, Tommy Dreamer was in the main event on his 50th birthday. Um, yeah. <laughs> so it doesn't, and Jericho's still wrestling, and oh, just, yeah, everyone, Sting, Sting for crying out loud, is having matches still. <laughs> so, like, yeah, everyone just seems older. And I think what's really fascinated is that uh, i remember watching wcw in the late wcw and they had guys like flair and piper and hogan mm. uh and they were in there like i mean flair was probably about 52 at the time hogan was in his mid 40s and everyone was like these guys are ancient they're just so old how are they yeah. still wrestling now that is just that is just that's just normal like aj styles has got to be about the same age as hogan was back then um <laughs> well yeah but you're right but it's like um even in New Japan, I mean, like, Kota Ibushi is, he's 38. Mm. Or is, I mean, he's 38, 36, 38, but he's late 30s. You know, Tanahashi's 42. You know, it, these guys aren't young by traditional wrestling standards. There was, I mean, there, there was kind of like a feeling that 40 was the sweet spot. Once you'd reached 40 in wrestling, you had the, you were still, you were still had the physical capabilities, but you had all the in-ring knowledge. And though you may have slowed down, your storytelling was going to improve. Like, you know, Flair was supposed to be at his best at 40. Harley Race was, at, when he was 40, was like the, the 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 absolute best that you could possibly be. Though a lot of, like, Race had got a lot done by the time he was 40. But I think that was the, 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 the thing is, is you are looking at those demographics, specifically in the US, which is saying that wrestling fans are my age, 46 to 50, yeah. if you see what I mean. And that's, fine but it's not a sustainable business model <laughs> it's just not we will die eventually <laughs> what a maudlin way to talk about on your podcast james um yes! I, <laughs> basically all wrestling fans are gonna die one day <laughs> they are <laughs> but yeah but equally i mean having said that i have a six-year-old student who loves orange cassidy so there you go there is hope <laughs> he'll get fed up of him by the time he's nine <laughs> he'll get fed up of wrestling by the time he's nine he'll go on something else yeah possibly I mean I don't know I think it. I, that's the that's the daft thing actually like and because I work in schools I do talk to the kids about wrestling not too much obviously because we've got work to do but I, I have noticed that I started talking to adults teachers and teaching assistants about professional wrestling much more than I do the children. Mm. Like one of my colleagues this week, he's my old supervisor. He he was saying like, oh, I've really got into wrestling uh, over the Easter holidays. And like he's in his early 30s. And uh, the, the first aid assistant was asking me about, uh, my son's really into wrestling, but I'm into wrestling too. Where can I go watch some wrestling when it comes back? Where can I watch live wrestling? So it's like there is, I think, yeah, I think... This like this steady creeping mainstream acceptance that wrestling's not like you know a signifier of the end of your like socially acceptance in the world, but 
also i think there is like it's it's the focus has gone to older people it's not uh, and it's not in the same way as like the attitude era and you know 90 wcw and ecw was aimed at that 18 to 30 market it's just that older people like it i think what's happened um james is that wrestling has become the latest thing co-opted by the ad- an adult generation so yeah um like for example when i remember when i was about 20 getting fed up of the popular music charts because yeah all the, all the music was made for 50 year olds like that is what pop music has has been for the last 20 20 years or so is made for people much older now it's kind of come back a little bit in the last few years um there's a there's a kind of been a switch in kind of what mainstream pop music provides but for large swathes of it it was for like so much of the popular music you get were made for people 40 and above and that's because they kind of co-opted it from their own youth and taking it with them yeah, yeah. and i think that happened with comic books at one point Again, similar mm. sort of thing. Like comic books weren't really for children anymore. Adults had taken it with them. Um, yeah. And that's kind of come back around now because of all the Marvel Cinematic Universe and all that stuff. But but at one point, like it was, comic books was the domain of people in their 30s and 40s as opposed to the children that they originally perhaps were for and these people got into it for. Wrestling's the same. Wrestling has been co-opted by adults for their enjoyment. And because they've got more disposable income, those companies are more than happy to feed them with the stuff they want. But of course, it alienates anyone who's younger and it's like, I don't want to watch this stuff that my dad likes. You've got to be yeah. joking. No, you're right. I think that's it. It's, But, you know, I mean, I I guess I'm partly to blame. I produce podcasts about wrestling that's 30 years old. But... James, James, you're not partly to blame. It's all your fault. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, man. <laughs> Appreciate that. You've been, my, you've been my enabler for the best part of a decade, though, so it's partly <laughs> your fault. <laughs> I'm comfortable with that. <laughs> okay, shall we move on to our semi-main event, as yeah, they would say? Uh, the semi-main event was for the NWA Light Heavyweight Championship of the World, uh, which the champion, El Satanico, successfully defended against the late, sadly, Lismark. Uh, late as in he died quite recently, not, not a long time ago. But actually, this is another thing about watching Lucha Libre. There's only two, three people on this card who have passed away. And if you watch the WWE card from the same year, There'll be a lot more. <laughs> oh, definitely. definitely. Yeah, there would be. I mean, it's yeah, we yeah. I mean, absolutely. You're absolutely right about that. Yeah, definitely. And uh, and Les and you know, Oro passed away because of a freak wrestling accident, and Lismark did die of natural causes. He was quite early. He was in his fifties, but you know, it was natural causes. Um, so yeah, uh, but yeah, this was this is the part of the hilarious ongoing story between the NWA and CMLL. CMLL were founding members of the NWA. Uh, back in the day, they were the Mexican territory for the NWA, uh, which meant they got all the big support when the UWA started in the 1960s and the NWA came trying to came into town and try and take over the UWA, which didn't really work. And that's really what allowed AAA to get kicked off because there wasn't the backup from the Northern Promotions to help them out. Um, and CMLL held several of the NWA lighter heavyweight championships, the light heavyweight championship, um, I think, the welterweight championship and the middleweight championship and several others as well. And when they left the NWA, they just kept defending them. 
and won't give them back to the NWA. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> <laughs> so they became the NWA called them the NWA Historic Light Heavyweight Championships to get around it because eventually. Of course, it got quite awkward because in the mid-2000s, the CMLL was having a working relationship with New Japan, who had a working relationship with the NWA. And obviously, the NWA was not at its political zenith in the mid-2000s of 10s. Um, so they kind of just like, well, yeah, it's all right. Just call them the NWA Historic Championships, and that'll be fine. Are you telling me that people in the NWA still felt like they should care about a title they hadn't, had, they hadn't had control of for like decades and quite frankly nobody in who might be their own fans even fucking knew that there was an <laughs> probably not but you, wrestling promoters are not known for their lack of pettiness now are they <laughs> but surely the promoters involved wouldn't have been even been the same bloody people. <laughs> you know? Oh no, it's probably yeah, it's probably something Sam Mushnick was quite aggrieved about back in 1974. But you know, um, not 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 at this particular point. And you know, the the the, the modern um, guardians, if you will, of the NWA flame tend to be a bit more realistic. <laughs> what's yeah. going on in the world i don't I, I bet you billy corgan doesn't know a thing about this title. <laughs> it's inactive now so they could have the title back if they wanted to <laughs> yeah, i think it i basically think it got mixed up in the actually it may have been in the super j cup or sorry the j crown tournament if i remember correctly i'll right. have to check it out which would have which have kind of like would have caused another mess as well um but yeah the nwa light heavyweight championship was uh, it was a CMLL title. You also have to bear in mind as well that titles in Mexico belong to the person who's defending them. So if they change companies, the title goes with them. Yeah, that's some crazy just, stuff right there. That just to crazy. just to make things even more complicated, the national titles, which are run by essentially the athletic board in Mexico City. So say if uh, Blizzmark had was the national middleweight champion, or like heavyweight champion. And he decided to go to Triple A. Um, the title belt would have gone with him. That's crazy to me. That just feels, that sounds crazy to me. Yeah, you don't like that idea at all. I, just... I don't dislike it. I just <laughs> I don't know how you how do you book a, a territory where you've got to where you've got to make sure. I guess you just make sure that whoever's got your title's got a good year on their contract. <laughs> yeah, get it off him before he runs out of contract. Um, it was a question I had about the last um, when you were talking about Triple Mania as well, and you were talking about the split, obviously, yeah, um, from CMML, and I was just wondering, like, how it's funny how that's happened in obviously in Mexico in the way that happened because you had a, an exodus of talent with, by the sounds of it, one of the bookers who kind of went out and started mm -hmm. their own thing, and I know it's happened in Japan a couple of times, yeah. Um, why has that not really happened in the big promotions in North America ever? I think because the thing is with Japan and Mexico is they're both singular territories. I know it did near it nearly happened in Japan when um, Baba and Inoki tried to take over uh, the JWA, mm -hmm. um, which but again that wouldn't have been like that's and essentially. Enoki had to leave. Somebody had to go. Baba was the more popular. They couldn't get rid of Baba, so they scapegoated Enoki, and that's what caused New Japan to get started. Um, but it doesn't. I think the thing is, there were so many options for employment in the U.S. If you didn't like where you were employed, there were other companies to go to where you would earn similar money 
um, and feel similar for and may get more creative freedom. Um, and I think especially, but even then there was only a handful of bookers. I mean, Gary Hart was the best booker in the business in the eighties. And he was, he was booking my, he was booking Florida. He was booking Dallas. He was doing some stuff for Alabama. He was doing some stuff in Georgia as well as a booker. And he was the storyline booker for those promotions. And he was the talent booker for those, all of the promotions in the Southeast. So, so you know, there was only so many creative spaces you could go, but Gary Hart's got the Southeast locked up, but you still could go work for Roy Shower in California, Roy Shire in California. I think there was more options for you to, if you were kind of minded as a booker, you could go find places to go work. Even if it was outlaw shows, non-NWA shows, you could go find a place you could be a booker and write TV for a, a few months to get some experience and then try and try your way somewhere else. There was a lot more room to be an apprentice in different roles within wrestling. Whereas CMLL, there was one show for four decades until the EWA came along. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Obviously in, in America, even through the seventies, there would have been, you know, you could, as you said, you've listed off a number of places and you could have gone to mid Atlantic. You could have gone to the WWF. You could have gone to AWA. There were multiple promotions in Canada. You could have gone to, so you would have been in a position where, and they were all about the same, not, not they weren't all the same size, but they were all, they all had a, a money making area of the country that, people could make good money out of whereas yeah. i guess if you've only got one place to work then you're a big you're a big name and you aren't happy with what's happening in that one place then i guess it makes sense you would then break out from that there's a reason why bushwhacker luke has been the chief book booker in puerto rico for the last 15 years <laughs> <laughs> believe it or not that's, that's it. he books w's uh, wwc i don't know he's been the chief booker in puerto rico for like god knows how long and it's like it's Bushwhacker Luke. <laughs> how's how's he even still alive? He was about eighty when he was in the WWF, wasn't he? He's actually younger than Butch. Butch okay. is the older of the two, but Luke just had a harder life, I think. Whereas <laughs> th things caught up with Butch as he got older. Whereas with Luke, he's still fairly active. <laughs> oh, that's 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 heartwarming, anyway. Yes, it is. There you go. Luke still got a job. He's employed. <laughs> Um, yes, but let's get to this wrestling match, which we have completely gone away from. El Sedanico defeats Lismark, and this was much more of the technical flair I think you were looking for. Yeah, it did have a lot more of the mat-based stuff that I was I was looking for. I really enjoyed that stuff. That was what I, I... I don't know why, but that was what I wanted from this show, and I have no idea why that was in my head. I think it's just because the word conservative was used, and I was thinking, <laughs> and I was thinking okay, well, that might mean that it's kind of they're just a lot more grounded in the basics, I think, was yes. what I took from that. And so that was kind of why I was expecting more of this kind of stuff. We got it here, and that was really, really um, gratifying. Uh, but I, again, I just I felt like it got a little bit repetitive as the match went on. Yeah. And that was a disappointment to me because I think, I think, um, is it Lismark? I can't, mm. the, the, I'm I'm, I'm going to get two matches confused now, so forgive me. But I think it might be Lismark who does a tilt-a-whirl backbreaker, and it's yeah. really nice. But he does it about seven times in the match. Ah, well, okay. Now, uh, a tilt-a-whirl backbreaker was con is considered like um, an overhand right in boxing. <laughs> like, if you, for those of you who don't know boxing, an overhand right 
is when you throw your right hand as your lead punch, which is an insult to a professional fighter because that implies they're slow enough to get hit and hit with their your back hand. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So if you uh, do a tilt-a-whirl backbreaker on someone, it's considered humiliating. So uh-huh. that's the reason why it's kind of like it's kind of considered like the 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 humiliating uh, move. It's the move that kind of like emasculates you. I guess is the phrase you're looking for. You are not as good a wrestler as you think you are because this fancy move put you on your back more than once. So it's that's the reason why the repetition is there. There's a lot of subtlety in lucha storytelling, which sometimes gets lost, especially if you don't know it as much as. I think this is the thing is like this period of time I was watching a lucha show every week. So I kind of got the rhythms and the cadences and they've stuck with me. Whereas if you haven't watched it week on week on week, you don't always get it. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And uh, so I got through the match, like the story to me was that they started off with a handshake, which yeah. I thought was kind of strange because here's El Satanico who comes to the ring with two women in devil bodysuits, <laughs> which is magnificent by the way. Um, oh yeah. But then bloody uh, Lismark comes down with two other women, but they're just dressed normally. And I found that quite disappointing, to be honest. I thought, come on, where's what's your character, Lismark? I get Satanico. Here he comes in, <laughs> devil women. That's perfect. But then Lismark comes in. I don't, what do you do, mate? Don't know what you do. Um, <laughs> Uh, and so I was like, even though I know that Satanica was the, the, the Rudolph, so I was like, come on, come on. I want, I want him to win. Um, and then, and so, and so they had the handshake. So there's obviously a sense of respect, apparently, before the match started. But then yes. they kind of get a little bit shirty with each other as the match goes on. And, and, and maybe, maybe that the, the, the backbreakers uh, played into that. Maybe that was why I was, uh, that was maybe the, the detail I missed. Yes. Uh, Liz Mark, by the way, takes his name from, of course, the famous German uh, Chancellor Bismarck. Okay. <laughs> no, <laughs> of course he does. <laughs> yeah, uh, according according to Wikipedia, I'm looking at there. His name was a, a bastardization. Yes, Liz Mark was inspired by the German battleship Bismarck. He had been fascinated with since he was a child. Okay. <laughs> um, so. I don't know. Maybe he could have had two women dressed as sailors or, or a European peace treaty of the 19th century. <laughs> <laughs> two women dressed as a European peace treaty from the mid of the 20th century. I'm not, I don't know. I'm not, I've got to be honest. That's going to be hard to portray <laughs> in costume. I, I mean, how do you portray aggressive nationalism in costume other than like, you know, German national dress, but that might have been. But it's it's Biz, it's Lismar, not Bismarck. It's been it's been changed. Yes, I, I did like the. I mean, I really like the fact that they graced the title with the importance of a nice yes beforehand. That's something that I really, obviously, having watched Chikara, that's something they do in sort of big matches in Chikara, and I really like that they obviously have taken this from Lucha Libre. And that Lucha Libre do it because it does just give it that sense of this is important, and I really think that is just a lovely touch. I think they, I think more companies should find ways to make their title matches feel more significant. Um, it was again talking about Chikara, another reason I liked whenever they had a title match. That was when they would make it two out of three falls. Mm. Which again, I just thought it, it's not that I love two out of three falls. It's just that I love the fact that they went out of their way to 
to make it feel therefore more important just by giving it that extra something so i i really appreciated that when that they had the little photo beforehand no i completely agree with you i think i was watching um uh myself and christy are doing a show on minoru suzuki soon and i watched the marifuji versus suzuki and ghc title match from 2015 and Kenta Kabashi comes out and he's the president of the uh, Global Honor Crown um, Committee. You know, and he comes out and he reads the challenges and he reads the champion out and he gives the rules of the match and the sanctioning body. And, you know, it feels like a big fight. There's, it's Kenta Kabashi. He's come out here to do something important. You will listen to what he will have to say. <laughs> yeah. And then yeah. he goes over and shakes Suzuki's hand and just looks at him disdainfully and then walks over to Marafuji and just lets get it on, do it, sort him out. And then goes on about his business because that was the story of the time. But it, it played into the story and it made it feel like a big match. This isn't playing into the story. It's a title match, but it feels important. And all Lucha title matches do feel important. They all feel like there's something going on. There's something on the line here. And... I do like the fact that they always treat it with respect as well. Even the Rudos treat championship matches a bit differently. They don't break rules as much. Like, in a six-man mm. tag that doesn't really matter, they'll break the rules all the time, but they still want to be seen as great fighters in a championship match, so they try not to, if they can at all, help it. But they probably will do in the end, if they get frustrated. I like that. I really yeah. do like that. I like the fact that it's not cheating for cheating's sake, is that either that they're not good as good as the babyface and that's where they have to cheat yeah or they've just they're just less um they've got less scruples and when it really comes down to it when they want to win they will go that extra they'll do that extra thing to make it to make it possible so i like that a lot um uh yeah cool that's cool yeah and also i mean in a catholic country how can you have a bigger heel than the devil <laughs> no, Satan is, <laughs> or well, I suppose he is a Satanist going up against, you know, uh, Lismark, a homage to the German Chancellor of Kaiser Wilhelm era. <laughs> but yeah, it, I, and they are good technical wrestlers. There's solid mat work in this. If you like, the very specific style of chain wrestling that Lucha has to offer and the mat work that Lucha has to offer, because there is a lot of variation in this. There's a lot of less obvious stuff. It's obvious to them. That makes perfect sense as a, as a submission hold. But it's not necessarily obvious to a Western audience, I don't think, a lot of the time. Mm. you know. And also, it doesn't look as... It doesn't look as cinched in. Like, a lot of this stuff I could see someone like Zack Sabre Jr. doing, but he would make it look excruciating. Whereas these guys make it look not that painful, if that makes sense. That's a really good point. That was something I kind of felt like was an impediment to my enjoyment of the show, show all the way through, was that not just the submissions as well, like lots of the moves they do, they don't do with a lot of intensity. There's not a huge amount of execution going on. They, they don't, you, can't, you don't get that sense that anyone's being hurt by the moves. Yeah. Um, and again... I guess if you are part of an audience that's been kind of conditioned to understand that those things hurt, then that works. But I yeah. think when you come from having decades of watching other wrestling, <laughs> you're going to watch this with a bit like, come on, mate, cinch it in. 
Stop. <laughs> this is all. This is all a bit John Cena for my liking. Um, so there was that. There was that through quite a bit of this show, to be honest. Uh, yeah. I did find that. There was a. I think it was this match. Satanico gets like a Texas Cloverleaf on Lismark, and then leans back for the arm. And I'm like, you could be sitting back on that a bit more. <laughs> just, just, just a lot more, in fact, because uh, if you're not bothered with the arm, it would look a lot better. <laughs> but. You know that's 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 the way it is, isn't it? And that's that's their style. And there's also the point as well. I think a lot of their wrestling it basically boils down to Mexican rings are not sprung they at all very well. So hence the reason why the pile drive was banned in Mexico for many many years because you know it could seriously hurt you if someone got it wrong. So they banned it and they banned it and after a while they realized hey we could use it as a tool for storytelling cuz you could have a match finish with a power driver if the ref doesn't see it mm. um and there's been some great matches that the way they did that i think it was um uh, i i think if i can remember the one world's collide pay-per-view when um art bar and eddie guerrero were wrestling elijo dos santo and an an octagon i believe they were one fall down at the end of the first fall and blue panther who was a rudos but seconding Santo and Octagon landed a pile driver whilst the referee was occupied on Art Bar, and that got them the equalizing fall. You know, and it was like because the ref didn't see it, and so therefore you knew it was a surefire finisher because the pile driver was banned. Yeah. Um, but a lot of it comes down to the fact that the rings aren't particularly safe working environments. Um, I remember um Prince Devitt or um, Finn Balor, as we, we as he's known these days did a CMLL tour in the early 2010s, his first tour there, and went for a drop kick off the top rope, flat back bump, shotgun drop kick, and then just curled up into a ball for five minutes. <laughs> Whilst his tag partner was like, well, what the hell do you think you were trying to do? <laughs> um, and a lot of the wrestling that happens in those rings does tend to be safe because no one wants to take big bumps on those rings, which is perfectly understandable. But when you're used to watching guys who work on rings that you can bump on properly, it makes it seem a bit tame. Yeah, no, that, that, that makes a lot of sense. I've I got to be honest, I will go back. I, I did I did find it quite funny then, James, when you were... Uh, you had you you found yourself having to say the name Finn Balor, and, and you were saying it through gritted teeth. Like, Finn Balor is his name. Yeah, well, he's he's Devitt, isn't he? It's, it's, it's Fergal. As you as you'll probably know, James, uh, from things I've said in the past, not the biggest fan of of Finn Balor. So uh, maybe maybe <laughs> Prince Devitt's better. Well, yeah, because it's it's like you know, it, to me, it's like I still see him as because I haven't watched him wrestle that much in the last six or seven years because he's not been on New Japan. So to me, he's still the leader of Bullet Club that caused all the bother. <laughs> James is just over here, like oh, he's dead to me. Dead to me. <laughs> not interested. Sh- Shinsuke Nakamura, who's that? <laughs> dead to me. Asuka, yeah. got to be joking, aren't you? Dead to th- me. Those were my exact words on Twitter. I can't remember. Somebody asked me, said, what do you think of us going to WWE? I, yeah, I'm not that interested. <laughs> she went, She's dead to me now. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But it's just like, I'm not, I don't, it, it just, it's not, I have watched them wrestle in those matches, specifically in big matches. I was kind of, I did watch Nakamura's debut against Sami Zayn uh, when he went, <laughs> Because I was like, I was, see what's happened, see what the difference is in. Because again, as well, it wasn't that much great time. It was only like a month between his last New Japan match and his first WWE match. So, 
what's the presentation going to be like and different. And do so I do occasionally go and see these people wrestle. So you picked the, pick the right match because, as far as I can tell, that's that been a decent one since Nakamura has had since he joined WWE. So, yeah. yeah, so you know, it's it's um, it is just there it is, and it's like some of my favorite wrestlers, like Millie McKenzie, has just joined WWE. I will probably watch her if she has some big matches and make a Satamora again, one of my favorite wrestlers, possibly my favorite wrestler in the world. Um, but it is just like it's just. It's not. It's not the other stuff, is it? It's, <laughs> so. I can just feel the heartbreak in your voice. James. <laughs> it's not. I have no problem with people going to earn a living in professional wrestling. I, I know you don't have me. a problem with it. It's just that you'd rather they didn't. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not that bad. <laughs> I, I used like to be it. much worse. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but. But <laughs> saying you're not that bad, I don't think you. Just because you're not as bad as you used to me doesn't mean you're not that bad. <laughs> I'm getting better. I'm dealing with it. It's all right. <clears throat> Should we talk about the main event? No, no. Let's let's. let's <laughs> no, I, I'm serious. Let's stay with Bismarck a minute uh, and Titanico because the end. I wanted. To yes. Um, I didn't like the end. I right. never like. I don't like these types of finishes. If I'm perfectly honest, usually where, because he does the kind of what I would because he locks in a surfboard and basically then slides allows yeah and, allows uh, what's his face um, Satanico to to slide down his body into a pinning combination. But it's clear they've both got their shoulders on the mat, and the referee makes it perfectly clear that he's counting them both because he's using both of his hands at the same time. Yeah. And I don't, so I don't usually like those anyway, because what happens is Satanico lifts his shoulder and then fine, um, this mark's been pinned. What I especially didn't like about this though is that because when Satanico lifted, lifted his shoulders up, he bridges his with his neck. Um, yeah. It unbalances Lismark to the point where his shoulders aren't on the mat by the time <laughs> the count comes as well. So it's just, yeah. I just found it to be really not very well executed. Yeah, if he had done it with the other shoulder on the other side of the referee, the referee would have seen that he was trying to make an effort to lift his shoulder and would have given Satanico the pinfall anyway. And it wouldn't, but he could have claimed that he couldn't see Lismark, mm. if that makes sense. Because they did, they did it on the wrong shoulder. He probably did it on the easy shoulder to do it with, but he did it on the wrong shoulder from a televisual point of view. And it, yeah, it, I, I understand what you're saying. I think once in a blue moon is fine, but not in a championship match because you need a definitive winner and loser. Well, I, it just it wasn't it like, just wasn't well executed. His shoulder was up, so I was like, well, you've you've gone to the yeah. gone to the trouble of having the referee make it like he even if you look at the replay, he even sort of take almost like does a double take like oh my god both of their shoulders are down and then looks at his hands very very briefly and then starts counting with both so they've really made a big deal of showing yeah. that the referee is making that mental calculation that both their shoulders are down but then by the third count neither of their shoulders are down and so you're like well come on guys you've, you've messed that up you've boxed it. <laughs> yeah it, it, it's not the cleanest of finishes and i think the match deserved a better finish than this one Really, yeah. they tried. They put the they put a really good match together, and it made a lot of sense. But it's also I don't I don't see Lismark losing anything in this match in the greater scheme of things because he's the bigger star of the two, and you clearly want to put Satanico over as a champion long term or longer than this term. So let him have the win. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. But you if know. you're going to do this ended, at least do it right. At least yeah, yeah. Lismark's shoulders are still down, and they just weren't. So it was a yeah. Shame. 
Before the main event as well, they had a video package for Conan. Yes. Which I thought was quite cool. But I was, it was a shame we didn't see him. Wrestling. No. <laughs> they had some big stars, though, at this particular point. Conan, was, at this point, was in his um, 10 matches a week phase where he was wrestling every day of the week plus three times on Sunday and twice on Saturdays. And he was like the most, he was hideously overexposed. And I think it was one of the reasons why he wanted to go to AAA was because he'd have less work and be a bigger star, if that makes sense. Um, yeah, I wanted to see him in um, CMML because, or and I, I may try and track something down from in AAA because I've already seen him in WCW and I felt like he was a bit lazy in WCW, if I'm honest. Yeah, I mean, I don't... He's not a technical marvel. He is very good at what he does, and he's much more technically minded in this phase of his career than he would be when he went to WCW. Uh, that first Triple Mania, he wrestled Cian Karras, and Karras is—he's not a technical wonder either, but he's a good like character wrestler. He's very charismatic, and so is so is um, so is uh, Conan. But neither of them were like. Um, you know, Luthez or anything, but it, it was a watchable. It was a watchable wrestling match, but it was it was about spectacle, and Conan was a spectacle wrestler in that sense. And uh, this was, uh, yeah, he, he this era he was a, as good as you were going to get him. Really, I think he was as good as draw as he ever was, and he was as good technically as he ever could be, which obviously doesn't always go hand in hand. Mm. Um, and yeah, it. But he was such a big star. He was a ubiquitous star for CMLL. And obviously, I think he's, they, they were going to suffer a lot when he left. Um, this was about the same period of time as just before he left. Well, I don't see... from from I can understand if he's not on this show, but I don't see why they had such a big exodus at this point. Looking at this card, the quality of this card is comparable to what you'd see triple a do a year later a year or so later but i don't see any i mean it's difficult to sell from one card like oh yes obviously clearly the company's going down the tubes but you know there's not i haven't got enough out of this to see why it was such a stifling environment for that set of wrestlers if you see what i mean they don't yeah. seem to be underachieving yeah i also i wonder whether or not because i don't I, I don't know about the split itself but i wonder whether conan's route to AAA was partially down to him going to WWE briefly in 92 because he was the original Max Moon. Yeah. And um, he the, obviously made the costume for Conan. And so when Paul Diamond had to wear it afterwards, it was too small for him. And he looked ridiculous. He would have looked ridiculous <laughs> anyway. It was a stupid costume. But, but it made him look even more stupid because it was too small for him. Uh, and But yeah, so he went briefly like August time, I think, to WWE in 1992. So not long after this. Yes, I would think so. I mean, Penner was getting frustrated in the office around about this time, and that's when he decided to make the jump. And UW, I think as well, UWA had closed maybe the year or so before. Um, so there was nowhere else to go. You know, yeah. there was there was no options, and there was a lot of big names out of the UWA roster like Paraguayo, who weren't going to CMLL because this, for historical reasons, had always been associated with other companies. So, you know, there was a lot of talent that was out of work. There was a lot of talent that wanted to change. And it was just kind of one of those perfect moments in wrestling where you can get that kind of thing happening because there was money available. 
I guess the economy was strong enough to support two companies again. And you had a big star and a big name booker that wanted to do something different. So it become all of a sudden becomes possible, isn't it? It sounds like it wasn't that much different, though, from what you're saying. Not hugely. It was more violent. It was out and out more violent. And as they started getting booked with ECW, they started bringing more violent ideas home. Yeah. Certainly. I can remember watching cards in 1994 that would not have looked out of place in Philadelphia. The Philly fans would have had a hard time following the rules. Or they wouldn't have liked. They would have liked the matches in that sense, and to the point where it was becoming contrived violence. And they did calm down a fair bit by the time they got to about ninety-five and ninety-six. But there was a lot more storyline based on Conan and his relationship with the other characters in the roster, um, and they brought in big name stars like Jay Roberts. The first big feud, well, the first big money making feud was Conan and Cien Karras, which was really a feud left over from CMLL. They'd had feuds before, and it was the biggest feud that going in Mexico at the time. And then how do you top that? Well, you bring in Jake Roberts, who was still hot from his WWE run. And, you know, everyone had heard of Jake Roberts at that point. He he had begun the slip, <laughs> as it were, in his physical presence. <laughs> However, he was still, you know, the master manipulator. He was still the best heel in wrestling, really, in North American wrestling. And and he was the right guy at the right time. Whereas CMLL didn't really get hot again until they, funnily enough, signed El Hijo Del Santo back from AAA. And when he left AAA, they turned him heel, which was the hottest thing in Lucha at the time because he's the son of El Santo. <laughs> yeah. Um, but he'd had a divorce and oh. he wasn't, yeah. Having a divorce in Mexico in the 1990s, you know, they're a little more open-minded these days. But back then, oh, you may as well have shot a puppy on national television. Oh. So, yeah, El, El, El Satanico must have been involved in that. <laughs> no, funnily enough, but Negro Casos was because that he was tagging. He turned up, turned Rudos on the Technicos team to join. Uh, the Rudos team and Negro Casas, the lifelong biggest heel in CMLL, was so offended he turned Technicos. Wow. Yeah, he just he just could not believe that someone would be so underhanded as to turn Rudos within you know for the company against the company that he'd, had given him a living for so long. And there was a big three-way feud between El Hijo del Santo, Negro Casas, and El Dandy, which had a big blow off on CML television. In I think ninety five, ninety six. Hmm. So there you go. Um, main, should we get to the main event? <laughs> yeah, yeah. James, you're going to have to accept. I'm going to take you off on these. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. Well, yeah, but this is what we do best. This is <laughs> this is this is it. Uh, so the main event was Vampiro Canadiense. I'm not really got the best Spanish pronunciation, but I think that's right. And he defeated Parata Morgan. Vampiro Canadian essay was better known as Vampiro to everybody else, and he dropped the Canadian bit, even though he is clearly Canadian. Um, and this was the early days of the dreads. This was like the early dread locked hair, um, and he's really not got an awful lot of making on. He is incredibly pale and incredibly over. Like 
the most over I've heard in a long while of watching wrestling. <laughs> it's ridiculous levels of over, specifically with the young and middle-aged female members of the crowd, I would suggest. Um, and Pareto Morgan is a big bad heel who is a pirate called Morgan. And <laughs> they tore the house down. And it was a bloody brawl from beginning to end. And I found it quite entertaining. What did you think, Ben? Well, uh, can Canadian Vampire and Pirate Morgan, we've got here. Yes. Canadian Vampire and Morgan the Pirate. Love it. Um, <laughs> when, you say, when you say Morgan the Pirate, it doesn't sound that exotic, does it? Well, that's his name. I don't know what to, don't know what to tell you. <laughs> Old Morgan the Pirate and Canadian Vampire. Um, this is really weird because on uh, my podcast at the moment, we are just about to cover a show which has got Vampiro in it. And so in two days, I watched two matches for Vamp the Vampiro's in, and they are the first Vampiro matches I've seen in about 20 years. <laughs> so I don't know, it was very strange that that happened. This was really strange, this match, um, I thought. I mean, you're absolutely right. Vampiro is insane over there. It's just crazy. Uh, I think you mentioned it on Twitter at one point. Yes. James, the woman in the front row is like in hysterical. She's absolutely like devastated by the punishment that her, that her yeah. hero is taking. Um, it's just, yeah, it's, she's very, very distressed. Um, and the reason she's very distressed is because for the first 80% of this match, Vampiro don't get a damn thing in. No, nope, like, no. He's entirely beaten up for it. Like he doesn't even get the nice baby face shine at the start. It's no. straight in to Morgan <laughs> the pirate beating the hell out of him. And um, yeah, he doesn't. He doesn't get a single bit of offense in whatsoever until really late in the match. Yeah, that's it. And he just does the big comeback to get the win at the end, and wins two falls quite quickly. And then Pirate Morgan has to, uh, quite frankly. I was distressed that such a beautiful mullet had to be destroyed for the sake of entertainment. <laughs> you were never going to cut Vampiro's head. <laughs> Absolutely not. Could you, could you possibly imagine uh, the riot of Catholic women that would be <laughs> have to deal with Arena Mexico? I will say this, just as we're talking about the crowd. It's July in Mexico City, and everyone in the front row has got the coat on. Yes! <laughs> oh, I'm so glad you brought that up because I watched it and I thought, am I going crazy? There are people wearing coats in the front row here. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, even the, the distressed lady we're talking about has got a rather natty sweater on with shoulder pads. And I'm like, it's Mexico City in July in Arena Mexico, a 10,000-seater stadium that is packed to the rafters because you can hear them all. How in God's name are people wearing coats in the front row? It's it's like the inverse of um, being northern and being able to take the cult. <laughs> like it, that's what it is. It's, it's like all the all the all of that. Like, we're talking about these these people in this crowd, and all the all the people in the crowd are like, it's not that hot, mate. What's wrong with you? Because <laughs> <laughs> I like it, it's northern hemisphere. I'm not going crazy. <laughs> it's like if it was in southern hemisphere i could understand it but we're not near the tropics <laughs> we're close but not that close and i've been to texas in august i know what the area of that the, the weather of that area is like and it's bleeding hot why i don't know don't get that part don't get that part um vampire vampire comes out to uh welcome to the jungle by guns and yes Races, which is nice yeah. um also i, I don't know if um, Morgan the Pirate comes out to it but somebody earlier on in the show does and I think it is played again later there's a 
piece of music that appears in Rocky Four that's played twice yes. on this show. It's not one of the kind of the hits. It's not like there's no easy way out or hearts on fire or anything like that. It's one of the actual composed, incidental, yeah, yeah, composed pieces. But it is, but it is from Rocky Four, which I quite liked. Um, Pirate Morgan, I think, is the one who has got the music that sounds like the Terminator theme. Yeah, it does. It doesn't seem to match his character very much. No, I didn't think so. No, um, but yeah, it, it was just a strange match. Like as I said, it, a vampiro just takes everything but there's no he doesn't get i think it takes him about 15 minutes to get a punch in he gets one punch in and then pirate morgan takes over again yes also one of the clearly least obstructed blade jobs in wrestling history because (laughs) it's just like you don't like he manages to be away from the camera for such a long time that you know something's up if you know anything about professional wrestling and then you get one shot where he's okay and then the next shot there's blood everywhere and it's like hang on he didn't touch you <laughs> but if, in fairness that bit he slams his head into the ring post two or three times and yeah. i thought it did look quite good actually um but i agree it, it obviously something it, they, they're not they're not hiding it very well by the no. way they did the camera shot um it just yeah so it was just a bit like Vampire just takes all this punishment and then and then wins. <laughs> that was the match. <laughs> that was the match. Right? Yeah. Like there's a bit of fire at one point from him when you're like, all right, here we go. He's gonna do his big he's basically hulking up, right? He's he's gonna yeah, yeah. now take over on his opponent. It didn't happen. He still got beaten up a bit more after that. <laughs> and then he still wins. It was just <laughs> it's also as well, he quite clearly could have come out and done a harmonica solo for 15 minutes playing Skip to Blue, my darling, and the fans would have been well happy. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's he it, it literally could have done anything, but he managed to milk the utmost emotion out of it by literally having the shit kicked out of him for 20 minutes. And yeah. But it's one of the best examples of you do not, literally, you do not have to get your shit in. If you know how to put the match together that the fans want, you can do what you, you don't actually have to do any work at all and let the other guy do all the work and you will still get the, reti- the desired response. Yeah, I think that's key. Is uh, and I think this is really important for me to say is that whilst I personally didn't love this match particularly, no, I und- like when you all you're looking for really, the only thing you really, in my opinion anyway, should ever be judging a wrestling match on is the response it's getting from mm. the people that they are in front of, who are their audience after all, um, and the fact that it you feel like they can make money out of it. And yeah. clearly they have, because it's an absolutely packed arena. Uh, and those, that packed arena is going nuts for it. Um, and so, you, you know, you can, you can moan about the technical quality of anything you want. Mm. But ultimately, this is the point of wrestling, is to get a reaction and make money. And that's what they do. Um, and they do it to an incredible extent, in fairness to them. Um, so, I, I, you know, I, I will bemoan the fact that, as I say, Vampira doesn't do a single thing during this match. Um, and also the fact that the end is basically um, Morgan's doing a bunch of spine busters, hits a spine buster, hits a senton, hits, gets a two count, go, goes for another spine buster, and then does one more, but Vampiro manages to reverse it into a small package, and that's the end. So Vampiro literally, I think he gets about three punches in, in the entire match, <laughs> um, and, and he wins. But as I say, how can you criticize? The end result is there for you to see. Yeah, yeah, it's it's... It's, an, it's spectacle wrestling. I think that's really like 
this era of Lucha Libre is all about the big stars and spectacle. And maybe that's the reason maybe Conan sees the writing on the wall that, you know, Vampira's the next big star coming through. Um, and again, Conan is not Mexican. He is Puerto Rican. He's not. Um, so essentially, it's kind of like the Gaijin wrestlers in Japan. There is the next Gaijin star, as it were, or non-Mexican star that's coming through. Maybe my time is done and it's time to move on to give Vampiro space and I can be a star in a different place. So, you know, not that particularly from what I understand, Conan and Vampiro are particularly close. What I mean is, if I, if I go to a place where Vampiro isn't, I can be a bigger star, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, yeah, definitely, definitely. I think um, I just love to know how because obviously they love Vampira, right? But I yeah. just love to know how he got there, like how they, how he became popular. Because I, I, as I say, I watched this and I watched a match with Vampira against Sting um, very recently. There's nothing about him. It doesn't do anything. <laughs> it just doesn't do a thing. How did he get over? I, he was. Um... For reasons, I mean, from I've listened to his out of wrestling podcast. It, it sounds like he just like went for a job and got a job, and then all of a sudden he had a soap career going alongside his wrestling career, and he became this national TV style almost like within three weeks because he was a guy who didn't look like anybody else. He was a an incredibly white human being. Let's be honest; <laughs> <laughs> they don't come well, like you know. Um, there are not many whiter human beings than this Canadian gentleman who's got dreadlocks and wears makeup. I bet there are where you're from, James. Oh, I yeah. <laughs> <laughs> not the not the dreadlocks and the makeup, more just the whiteness. I'm sure they're. <laughs> <laughs> yes, in Lincolnshire, the land of you know Anglo-Saxons and Irish people like me, um, <laughs> it's just like it literally is. As far as the eye can see, white people. But um, yeah, Vampiro uh, Land. That's Vampiro Land. That's it. We may as well be. We're almost Canadian. In fact, Chris Onsale, who did a true pretty show with me not long ago, who lives next door, is actually Canadian. There you go. See. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, uh, I think that's the thing. Is like Vampiro just he looks completely unlike a lucha star in the same way Solomon Grundy does but just so much more unlike what a Lucha star is supposed to look like, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, definitely. I just, it was, as I say, it was just a really strange contest. Um, and one question, it was, yeah. was it Norman Smiley in Vampiro's Corner? It was indeed Norman Smiley in Vampiro's Corner. The old black magic, as he was known then. <laughs> Unfortunate. I'm, I'm not kidding. <laughs> it was like... What, well, we've got the, we have we have this wrestler of, of African descent. What should we call him? Black Magic. There you go. What? I'm trying to decide whether that's worse or better than him being called Screaming Norman Smiley. <laughs> yeah, this is it. And it's like you look at like this card, and there's Norman Smiley, who these days is head of submission wrestling at the Performance Center in Florida. Mm. If you if you want a new if you want a new submission finisher, you go see Norman, that, and he'll sort you out. Um, true story. Uh, and like Elsmo Dragon literally founded the Dragon Gate company. It wasn't Dragon Gate back then, but you know, what would become Dragon Gate. And of course, a massive influence on anyone who's in a junior heavyweight position in Japanese wrestling in any company. Yeah. You know, um, and 
that this is one of those cards where you get these worlds colliding. Dragon would have been, I'm trying to think where he would have been in Japan. It would just as war was taking off and he was going back back and forth between, um, well, not war, SWS. That'd be Genichiro Tenry's promotion. Um, I'm glad you. I'm glad you cleared that up because I thought there was some kind of war, like actual war, <laughs> that was taking place that he had to be shipped off to. No, no. Right. Okay. So, quick, quick history lesson. Genichiro left Tenru left All Japan Pro Wrestling and founded SWS Super World Sports with one Vincent Kennedy McMahon as a co-promotion and a big optical firm in Japan. When the optical firm pulled the money out, he started his next promotion called War or Wrestling and Romance. which had a corking junior heavyweight division which featured such wrestlers as tomohiro ishii who you like quite a lot do but i didn't realize he was a junior heavyweight he was to start with he started his new japan run as a junior heavyweight as well um but he started putting weight on in the 2010s to go up to heavyweight but i think he makes a better heavyweight than he did a junior even though he's the right size to be a junior he actually makes a better heavyweight Oh, that's, oh well, I, I'm I, I'm glad that I I mean as you know I, I love Tommy Hiroshi so I'm very very interested to know to see some of that because um but as you say if he's better then I don't want him to be sullied by the he used to have curtains though I'll have to tell you that oh no <laughs> <laughs> don't ruin him don't ruin him for me <laughs> um oh that's just that's just that's the whole thing oh, I, I, I'm done with wrestling. That's it. <laughs> Tommy Arushi used to have hair and was 200 pounds at one point. Yes, there you go. No, I just war and romance. So, what a name! That's fantastic. Yeah, it's just wrestling and romance. What, like, what were you considering? They did, they changed it to Wrestling Association R after a while when they realized that, like, that there's no romance involved in this, it's just wrestling. I think that's even, <laughs> that's an even stupider name. R, R doesn't even mean anything. No. Wrestling Association R, that's yeah, so stupid. <laughs> yeah, but it's Tenru. He can get away where he wants, can't he? So. Bring back wrestling and romance. That's what I say. You, you could, the, you could start a campaign. There was apparently um, someone was trying to free up the rights to wrestling and romance so it could go on New Japan World because um, they were trying. New Japan World would, at one point, I understand, trying to buy the rights stuff up the same way that WWF had done. Sorry, WWE had done with the like the. Um, territories in the states they were trying to pick up like old tape libraries mm. um, and it's remarkable a lot of the FMW stuff you used to be able to literally see every FMW show that had been recorded on YouTube and then a lot of people started getting strikes against them as people started to pick up on the copyrights again so, so who's got who's got the copyrights? I don't know but somebody must have done because they've understood that it's suddenly become valuable mm. and I'm intrigued actually because uh, I'm not so sure it's as valuable as it used to be because you don't see as many people talking about the old matches on the network anymore. Do you see what I mean? Like, yeah, but the, the reason for that though, James, is that they don't add anything now or no, very little. No. They used to add lots, and now they don't really add an awful. Yeah, lot. so it's 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 not as. Um, I think for the for all the fans and enthusiasts, it's always going to be there. But I think um, you know that impetus to buy up everything isn't there that it used to be yeah i, I agree i think you're, you're probably right i think um it's a shame i mean i really got into the old stuff and at one point i i kind of thought about the network itself and i thought you know 
even if this is WWE and there's a lot of crap on there, like this is a phenomenal resource for anyone who wants mm. to watch lots of old wrestling. I mean, there are full like wrestling shows dating way back into the seventies. The the earliest match they've got on the WWE network is from 1951, I think, yeah. um, which is incredible. Like that, that kind of stuff should be maintained somewhere for posterity. And, ultimately the place it's currently held is the wwe network and at one point i think as i said i think it's gone off the boil a little bit because they don't put the same focus on old wrestling as much anymore but but like at one point i would say that was just absolutely just so much stuff there like they're like about four years worth of wwf all-star wrestling from the 70s um, with everybody you could ever want coming through the territory and there are many many years of mid-atlantic and mid-south and world-class championship wrestling there's stuff from awa there's all the the, pretty much the entire run of ecw and wcw on all of their television programs and pay-per-views not just the big shows um you know just a phenomenal amount there's stuff from uh, smoky mountain on there stuff from uswa all like just huge amounts of stuff and you just think um like it's incredible that all this is in one place uh Mm. and it would be great if you had that kind of equivalent when it comes to japanese wrestling um maybe yeah japan world could be that i i kind of i mean the the, it's kind of disparate like geora who televised noah in the sorry all japan in the early days have a battle stations youtube channel so like so they they televised all japan just after the noah split so they've started producing a lot of those older shows which is really interesting because it's kind of period of all Japan not that many people are interested in as people are starting to get interested in again mm. because because it was the Satoshi Kojima era just after Muta had become Booker and Kojima jumped ship and he was starting to get pushed to the moon as the the next ace of all Japan um, and a lot of people are kind of intrigued by that because obviously Kojima is still a relatively big star especially he's had a good run this year so but again it, it's from so many dis- disparate places and different places because so many people have had fingers in so many pies like um ntv owned the rights to a lot of the stuff that happened in all japan in the 90s the the, the biggest stuff that everybody wants to see and everybody wants to watch and nick on tv don't want to put it on a streaming service yet so mm. everyone relies on youtube and hopes it doesn't go away and then eventually of course it does because <laughs> <laughs> Because Nippon TV go, no. <laughs> so there you go. But yeah, going back to our main event, the one thing that made me laugh out loud was the fact that Parita Morgan is a pirate and therefore is wearing an eye patch. So the hairdresser who comes in to cut his hair just takes the shade razor above the line of the eye patch. Because obviously Parita Morgan cannot take the eye patch off and then give away the fact he doesn't have one eye. <laughs> So essentially, he just has this like bald ring around his head, <laughs> which is just like an intentional kind of like I I don't know just what I hear you describe it. It's like an intentional Bobby Charlton. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like of all the roughest haircuts I've seen in haircut matches, this appears to be the cruelest of all. Presumably, Morgan the pirate shaves it all off afterwards. I would hope so. I hope he just didn't go with like the ring of fire around his ears. Yes. <laughs> Uh, but yeah it just i don't i hope he would do really um one thing i did wonder about with this stuff and again you know i obviously i know that hair versus hair and hair versus mask and mask versus mask matches are a big deal in mexico mm. um 
And I can, they've got a name, haven't they? And I can't remember what it is. A less better bat matches. That's it. Mm-hmm. Um, the But what I couldn't understand, I can definitely understand it with the masks. So I understand if you build mm. up this mysticism around the masks and then the you've, one of them's on the line and you are in danger of losing it, I, I can completely understand how that would be a real concern. The hair mask, the hair match, and how they sell that to the crowd as being important, I do not get. It's the humiliation factor again. A lot of this plays into some quite awful toxic masculinity. Right. Okay. Well, it's <laughs> always, mean... always good to hear about. <laughs> <laughs> but a lot of it does, it is like it's considered a serious humiliation within Mexican culture. Um I will, I will point out that Mexican wrestling has got a lot better at representations of, of, of masculinity in many different ways. For instance, their exoticos are now quite, a lot of them are baby faces, whereas traditionally exoticos who were essentially uh, cross-dressing or transgendered men were always traditionally heels because that was a negative portrayal of homosexuality, basically. Whereas these days, uh, they're quite celebrated as baby faces and are often invited to pride and uh, co take part in pride parades and things like that. So, Lucha Libre has, as Mexico has grown as a more open society, so as Lucha Libre has been reflective of that. Um, but yeah, the hair versus hair thing is a humiliation. It's considered, and it's considered that way for a lot of Catholic countries. Uh, having your head shaved in France was considered a, a capitulation of humiliation as well. Uh, and that was one of the ways they punished um, people after the Second World War, um, specifically women. Yeah. Uh, but, um, yeah, it's, it's been part of lucha culture for a long time. And it's just become, it, it's become um, really the way to settle it for unmasked wrestlers. Obviously, as well, if you've got a mask, you need to bet something. If you've got not wearing a non-mask wearer, you have to bet something to get somebody's mask off as well. So I think practically, if there's practical booking reasons behind it as well, but also I think it's just part of that kind of uh, that kind of culture, which got picked up in Japan by the by the Joshi wrestlers. Hair, hair versus hair matches are still a big thing in, thing in Joshi wrestling, specifically the older companies like Oz Academy. But even Stardom had a hair versus hair match on their big Budokan show, Budokan all show earlier this year, which is the reason why Julia is currently sporting a short back and sides after losing the Wonder of Stardom Championship. That's interesting. Yeah, I mean, I can imagine it being a bigger, and this is not, I, goodness knows, I'm gonna, I'm making a hand <laughs> attempt at commenting on something that I know little about. So apologies, but I can imagine it being a feeling like a bigger stake when you have two women wrestlers. Yes, um, especially if those women wrestlers have hair that they are proud of, or they like, or they, you know, they've got the style of hair that they want. Is much, I guess, it's much harder to grow long hair if if you have long hair as a woman back than it is to grow hair that you might already have as a man if you haven't got long hair. That's a yes. ridiculous thing to say. I don't <laughs> but, you know, in my own way, I'm trying to say I could understand why that could be seen in some quarters as a as a more high stakes match. Whereas yes. I just don't really understand it in this context. But I think well yeah, I think you're right. It's like femininity is often associated with beauty. So from a audience point of view, even though that may not be the case. 
And, you know, the Molly Holly thing is obviously the, the key one, isn't it? She didn't care whether she had long hair or short hair, which is the reason why she suggested, hey, why don't we have a haircut match at WrestleMania? And then that will get us on the card, <laughs> <laughs> which was very clever business. But it also meant she didn't care about Lyman. She didn't care about the humiliation of having short hair because she didn't care whether she had long hair or short hair. And funnily enough, sports a cropped haircut these days, a pixie cut, because that's her preferred hairstyle. Mm. Um, so, you know, I think you're right. It makes more sense in traditional gender roles in a women's match for this to be the bet match, not in a men's match. But equally, you know, um, Pierre Morgan did have a superbly flowing layered mullet. That's true. Uh, which he clearly spent a lot of time on because it was always well, it was well quaffed, I thought. And, yeah, yeah. And obviously, as well, for someone who wears dreads, the only way you're going to have a different hairstyle is to shave your head. And funnily enough, Vampiro these days always sports a shaved head. Yeah, that, in fairness, like that was what got this over with me was actually both of these guys had hair that you wouldn't, that you could tell they wouldn't necessarily want to lose. Yes, it felt like it was a stakes match. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's an intriguing thing to me as well. It's like, because it is. Like you're right, is hair versus hair matches don't nest I don't think they've caught on in the US the way they have in Mexico and it's not part of the culture, which makes them intriguing when they do happen. I know Gorgeous George, who obviously a lot of his aura was about being, you know, uh, a well turned out man, as it were, with again, with homophobic overtones, but a lot of that was part of his hair and the, the pomp of his hair and styling of his hair. And, you know, a lot of the time he had hair matches to take advantage of that. Um, and then would promptly have to spend the rest of the next three months in the in the territory walking around bald whilst his hair grew back so he could go somewhere else and have another hair match. <laughs> just, um, just imagine if Ric Flair had, had to have a hair versus hair match and lost. That would have been crazy. He, he did once. Um, wow. I guess whose idea that was? Vince Russo. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was going to be during his. I mean, at that point, it doesn't matter. It's only it's Ric Flair in his fifties, so I don't really care about that. But if it had been in his seventies or the eighties, flipping hell. Yeah, that's it. That was that, well. That was part of uh, Flair was used that as part of the angle. He said, "I will even put my hair on the line because I never ever did that." Promoters came to me and said. Will you have a hair versus head match? And I always said no, but I will do this to get you in the ring. And that's that was part of the angle. Well, you you know Vince Russo era WCW far better than I do, James. Because I I watched that and it is etched on my brain. <laughs> Indelibly. Like trauma. <laughs> <laughs> I watched with my mouth open as I saw a territory sink before my very eyes. Mm. Um, and to be honest, it it didn't actually seem that bad at the time. <laughs> no, like I, this is the thing with you, James. Is you just always see the best in wrestling. I didn't. Yeah, did. I do. But I mean, I didn't. Well, you know, I did. It didn't see that bad at the time because it was slow drip. And then after three months, you go, "This is dreadful." What happened? And then you think about all the steps they took to get to this dreadful point. Mm. There were some things that were obviously dreadful, like um, Oklahoma. That's yeah. an awful idea. Why would you? Making fun of the opposition, it does never helps you. You will come off as mean-spirited if it's not done right, and you come off as giving airtime to the opposition. 
Yeah, you're relying on your yeah. audience knowing who the what the opposition do. And yeah. if they don't know, they're then curious and want to go and see it. Exactly. So it's like, why are you just because you have a petty feud with Jim Ross, what's the point? It doesn't make any sense. It makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. Um and and stuff like that and you know, the women's championship, you suddenly went from Alundra Blay, well, uh, Medusa Maselli versus Akira Hokuto for the women's championship, having these like fifteen-minute mini classics on on Nitro. To oh, it's Medusa Maselli versus some guy, mm-hmm. you know, and it's it's like what, how, eh? this she, which she won the cruiserweight title as well, didn't she? She won the yeah, she won the cruiserweight championship, and it's like it's eh? <laughs> <laughs> your your brain explodes like six months ago. Even though it was the, the the height of the NWO, there were still elements of the the WCW that you know you guys looked at Spring Stampede last week on your sh- on wrestling uh, random wrestling review. There were still elements of that company even six months before. Yeah, you know, and then suddenly in th- within three months, it was an unrecognizable television production. Mm, very you know. Very sh- big shame, big shame, because I think we all would now retrospectively like WCW to still exist. Yes, I think, you know, I think this is the thing, and there's been lots of impact. We're supposed to try and find that audience, and I think AEW has found that audience to an extent, because apparently only 50-year-olds watch it. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> well, that's it, they'd have to be. It was 20 years ago. <laughs> yeah. this, is the, this is the thing that always kind of like... A, I understand what Jerry Jarrett and Jeff Jarrett were thinking of when they started Impact in the sense of let's go find this audience that clearly should still like wrestling. But it is like, then why didn't you go and try and find a different audience altogether? Well, I think, I mean, but also, I mean, when Jerry and Jeff Jarrett started Impact, let's not forget, in TNA as it was at the start, yeah, um, they weren't really doing WCW-style wrestling. They no. were doing like Vince Russo style wrestling, quite frankly. <laughs> and so they were never going to find the audience because it wasn't, they weren't appealing to them with the product they put out. No, it's, it, it was an odd company to say the least. They did some cool stuff, but and... I think the, I think their product now is much more like what WWE's yes. fan base like than, than what it was ever at any other point. Well, yeah, and you've got you've got the guys to do it, and you have a talent swap agreement with New Japan Wrestling that is that seems to be common sense rather than living in Cloud Cuckoo Land, <laughs> and you have you know a women's division that is based around athletic uh, accomplishment and with some intriguing storylines, you know that isn't all right. Okay, so Rosemary is, is literally a demon from another dimension. However, by wrestling standards, it's fairly normal. <laughs> Oh, yeah. um, okay, and I've just seen El Titanico. I've just I, and I've yeah. just seen can- Canadian vampire against Morgan yes. the pirate. Literally a Canadian vampire versus Morgan the pirate, and that Canadian vampire is now the lead booker for AAA. <laughs> Amazing. It is. Is this card has been like a revelation of like how do we get to professional wrestling in, in the world today? Um, and largely because of guys like this, and also people like Solomon Grundy who had three matches a year and then never were never heard of again. What a hero. Yeah. yeah, I think he is the hero of this card for you, isn't it? Definitely. I, I was just, I think because he stood out so much, he's so much different to everybody else. And as I say, like, he doesn't look like he's done any work. To, I mean, sure, I'm sure he's been training. I'm sure he's trained to be a wrestler. Um, and he didn't do anything I thought that was, you know, bad in, in his match. But 
if you look at him, doesn't look like a wrestler. doesn't look like he's done very much work. And yet here he is in front of this big old crowd. And uh, he and he kind of is the hero of the piece in the match itself because he carries the referee back to the backstage after the match. Yeah. So it was... Did you think it was a fun card to watch overall, taking the... Once you'd figured out what was going on, (laughs) (laughs) which took some doing, clearly. But uh, once you got over the confusion, what did you think of the show? It was okay. I I don't think it was the kind of thing... It didn't make me think, right, I've got to start watching more of this stuff. Um, And that's, I think, probably a cultural thing more than anything else. Yeah. Yeah. but it, it was it was definitely interesting to me to watch it because I, as I said, I'd never watched a CMML show or, in fact, any Mexican wrestling show at all in my entire wrestling life. I've watched matches, odd matches here and there, but never a full show. Um, and so that was really kind of fascinating for me. Um, I knew a lot of the wrestlers on the show, or at least I had heard of a lot of the wrestlers on the show. Uh, and it was great to sort of see them in action for the first time because, as I say, like I, especially sort of in the period between, I'd say, 98 and 2000, consumed everything I could consume about pro wrestling. And that mainly meant reading magazines and reading the PWI Almanac and things like that because didn't really have access to the television shows on uh, you know that or any of the action on television just wasn't really there Mm. um and so i've read the names of these most of these people many many times and kind of even seen results of things um and and in some cases like in some of the wcw stuff the way i know what happened is just through reading the reviews and having read them more than once so lots of these names kind of meant something to me and so it was really good to see them but i didn't love it i thought it was okay i thought it was and i and i guess the thing for me though mainly was that i could see that there was a, they were doing their job well because they were getting what i said earlier on they were getting their the reaction they were supposed to be getting a huge reaction for vampiro they got a completely sold out arena they do this every friday understand this particular show which is phenomenal um and very much more in the mold of kind of the territories age when those territories would every friday night hit the same kind of arena every single friday night um but the difference here is that they put it on television as well like the territories wouldn't have done that. The territories would have had the television show in a little studio and then hit the arena every Friday night with the matches they'd set up here. They're putting the big arena show on the television every week, which is incredible. It was the next day. It would be, this was this, this appeared on television on the 18th, but it actually was shot on the Friday night on the 17th of the 18th, the Saturday would have when it would go out and then it go out to international audiences on the Sunday. So, um, yeah, uh, on the 18th, because I obviously I was looking for the 18th when I looked it up, and they ran two shows on the 18th as well. Mm. And the yeah. eight, one of the shows on the 18th was headlined in a, a women's tag match, uh, a trios match, and it was three women from AAA and th- sorry, three women from CMLL and three women from AJW, including Akira Okuto. Um, so you know this this was. Uh, they were doing big deals with big companies around the world. They were they were the guys in Mexico. They were the big company. Obviously, the big threat from the UWA, which concentrated more on big name wrestling matches. Really, UWA was about uh, 
even more spectacle because they had people like Vader and they had people, big name US wrestlers would go to UWA for big payoffs on big shows. And that was kind of their model, or as CMLL was much more, obviously conservative is a relative word, <laughs> as we've discovered, <laughs> but they were conservative in the sense they were much more like build our own stars, always have a steady view, steady row of income rather than big payoffs on big shows. Yeah. Uh, which was, you know, kind of UWA's thing. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I like it. I, I, I like the, the thing I find most fascinating, and when you were talking about um, kind of all Japan at the turn of the century as well, the thing I find more interesting than actually the wrestling, if I'm honest, is, is just the, the machinations and the business and how, yeah. how, they, how they make money, how they book. Um, and when I say book, I'm not talking about necessarily, you know, how, my, how much, how much, speaking they have for example or or how or how or how who wins more just kind of like how they what the rhythm is of a given territory like as i said to you before mm. i i've watched loads and loads of stuff from the early 80s from the various territories around america and they each had slightly different ways of of promoting and, and booking their shows so like for example world-class championship wrestling they would do their star wars shows but they would often show the matches from those star wars shows on their free television show mm. whereas mid-south you'd never see their important matches on the television show the television show always was the two three minutes in the studio matches and so this is another way of doing it where you've got all these really big matches happening at an arena in mexico city in front of thousands of people and then the next night just showing you what happened and just giving you all of the all of it all it for free on television um and and not really necessarily i think they do these days a bit more but back then not necessarily building to anything bigger than that friday night television show yeah. that would be recorded for television um so you're almost got this kind of rhythm of big matches happening every single week probably featuring different wrestlers each week yeah at the top level at the top in the main event but kind of just a really different rhythm to to the way that they're booking the show so it just it, it that's the stuff i find interesting uh, you know about stuff that i haven't seen before more is just the the way they book the way they promote and and the business machinations uh, of of how these things um, kind of go. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think it, I think the parallels with like the way the Japanese business uh, run things. The Japanese kind of seem to be like a halfway house between this and like the North American way of sorry the U.S. way of presenting things. Like in the sense of uh, Japanese house shows are all trios. Uh, what the Mexicans would call Atomicos, four-side matches, uh, ten-man tags. They're all those style matches. And then at the end of the tour, you have a big singles match. And occasionally you'll put a big championship match on a house show. But there is no... Japanese wrestling hasn't really had a weekly television show for mm. quite a long time. You know, it used to be you watched... It was the All Japan show on Nippon TV would be a 45-minute show. Me and Alex are going to look at the very first Noah show soon and the very first All Japan show after the Noah split because they're both available on YouTube now. Well, the, the All Japan show was a 45-minute show and it would be three matches and it would be the opener, the mid-card championship match and the main event from Budokan the previous week. Mm, you know, it's kind so, of like a, a highlights package almost. Yeah, um, with the promos and stuff. 
but they knew they would sell the arena out because people would want to be there. And this is the same kind of thing. People clearly want to be in the building to watch the match live because yeah. you won't sell 10,000 tickets otherwise. <laughs> Definitely not. No. You know, so it's, I think it's, it's keeping that live environment special, I think is a good way of doing it. You know, it seems to be the way that those companies survive because it's like, if you told Vince McMahon to put a big house show on free TV, I know they did it locally through closed circuit, like on Madison Square Garden, Boston Gardens, uh, closed circuit TV shows, but the, the WWE would never put like a big MSG show for free on network TV or even local hookup TV, would they? It no, they wouldn't. Work. But again, I guess you, if you compare it to the Mexican model that CMML are running at this point, CMML are the only promotion and they're national. WWF, yeah. when they were running Madison Square Garden as their big show every month, weren't national. So it's a different, again, it's a different scale. Yeah. Different, do you see what I mean? I just, I, that's why I find fascinating about it. Like I, I wrote a piece on, on kind of my own little blog um, a couple of years ago about Bruno San Martino because I watched a load of his matches on the network and kind of grew to really enjoy Bruno San Martino. But I wrote a piece about how kind of WWE have, have, have written this narrative now about him which is that he's kind of the first person in a list of their top stars and who they position as the top stars in the world so they've got kind of they see the lineage from i don't know roman reigns to john cena to i don't know the rock to steve austin to hulk hogan to bruno sammartino and it positions sammartino as if he's the biggest star or he's one of the biggest stars in the history of the business and the truth is is that first of all bruno sammartino wasn't even really the biggest star in the in the country when he was at his the height of his popularity because there were loads of other major stars in north america having were what were considered yeah. world championship matches the harley races the rick flares the briscoes the kaniskis all these different people from all these different territories having massive matches ray stevens nick bockwinkle huge amounts of people um and also but also he had a different scale of draw like he was drawing more more sustainably and massively in Madison Square Garden, more than anybody else ever has, including Hogan, Rock, Austin, all those people. Mm. And But that was his job. And that was the only job he ever had, really, as a headlining yeah. star, was to sell out Madison Square Garden and the Boston Garden and the Philadelphia Spectrum and the Maple Leaf Gardens. Whereas, um, like, for example, um, uh, Hogan, for example... Did it couldn't draw that intensely in that in those arenas, but could draw massively everywhere in the world. And so it's just a completely yeah. different scale and a different job, a different task that they were doing. And that's what I find fascinating. Here you've got a promotion in Mexico that is actually nationwide well before the rest of the wrestling world was. Yeah. Because there wasn't another, there wasn't an alternative. They were the national promotion of Mexico, while in America there were ten promotions all at one time that could have been considered the biggest or the highest drawing um, territory. And they've got a national television show that's happening weekly, and it's happened weekly for however many years—I don't know how many years—but lots and lots and lots of mm. years. Um, so essentially, essentially, since Mexican television started. <laughs> so it's just—it's just really kind of. That's what I find fascinating is just that kind of how the business is just different in time and in geography uh, all over the place. 
I think as well, if you compare it to say like something like World of Sport, which is actually closer stylistically to Lucha Libre than it is to uh, US wrestling, in the sense of it was uh, a national promotion in the sense of like joint promotions was a national promotion. It was a cartel. Mm -hmm. And the style of wrestling is limited by the fact that everybody has to go to work on Monday mornings and no one's going to kill themselves and the rings are made of lead. (laughs) So, (laughs) so, you know, that's, that's the thing, but equally they went the exact opposite route. They wouldn't even put tag matches on more than once a month because it was considered far too exciting. (laughs) <laughs> and they'll come to expect it it's a very british like you know. it's more expensive as well because you have to pay more people yeah exactly and oh god 500 quid a night for the main event Oof. yes <laughs> that was the, for apparently that was roughly what if you if you did the tv main event in the 70s you were on 500 quid a night when that was five when 500 quid was 500 quid um but you know what I mean? It's still Is it not five hundred quid anymore. <laughs> five hundred. Well, when you consider that, like my parents bought their first house for three thousand pounds. <laughs> I I know, but it, it, <laughs> the same time, it's still five hundred pounds. It probably is less. Is a lot less oh, valuable. Value. You, yes. Still five hundred pounds. Yes, but you know what I mean. But <laughs> I, I I think you were trying to stretch for uh, inflation. <laughs> yes. The yes. That you were giving there. Yes, um, a, a nineteen sixty-eight five hundred pounds would go a lot further than a two thousand twenty-one five hundred pounds. Certainly would. Okay, right. So yeah, it's <laughs> it it, but it's still like uh, it was still a limited kind of way of building stars because you weren't paying them enough to to make that the kind of money that they were making in Mexico. And also they were constantly trying to lower expectations because if you raise expectations and make things bigger, then you have to put money into production, which is not something the promoters were prepared to do quite clearly. Um, but yeah, so I'm wondering, you know, if you think about like the ridiculous like level of viewership that British wrestling got, which is probably comparable percentage wise to what CMLL or AAA were getting in the nineties. And it is like, well, how come AAA could go to uh, the bull ring in Mexico City and sell out 45,000 four or five times a year and British wrestling would struggle to fill Walthamstow Town Hall? Because <laughs> <laughs> that's the bit that amazes me. And the reason why is, well, they did do Wembley Arena every once in a while. They did it every year in the 80s, I think 81 and 82, and I think maybe 83 as well. But they didn't they didn't take off and do the things like Mexico did because that would have required investment they weren't prepared to do, which is amazing, isn't it? Really, when you think about it. It's like they could have done, but they didn't want to take the risks. Nutters. Yeah. I'm not convinced that I you know, I think I love world of sport wrestling, but it does seem like an awful lot of missed opportunities. Well, I, I yeah, I mean obviously it is. I mean the, talking about nationally television nationally broadcasted wrestling television in the you know throughout the 70s and 80s i mean you're talking about like like not just a huge because it's national so it's it's like you know it would be like the equivalent i guess would be like wwf being on nbc for example yeah yeah but at a time when there are only three channels anywhere in the country like it Mm. wasn't like you could get cable that was it. You had three channels. So 
people would have the choice of watching one of three things and wrestling was one of those three things and the fact that they were unable to capitalize on that in a meaningful way that would set the business up for decades in the way it has in north america and in mexico and in japan that's yeah. crazy yeah and it's also when you think back to a recently read um a book about uh a london wrestler um uh chick cocky knight who was in the pre um pre 30s i think the the pre joint era certainly and they were getting 10,000 crowds pre television you mm. know to for before the days of soap opera and before the days of like even a lot of booked matches you know it was still probably worked where a lot of it was very very stiff and they were just cold fights that were just promoted as 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 sporting contests they were getting much bigger crowds than they were with a massive tv audience and it's just bizarre to me <laughs> I, I guess the thing is is that um the i read something in that, well, not long ago about the premier league and yeah. how it's got a natural market advantage because of a couple of things first of all unlike um the american sports leagues mm. um you can watch uh british sport because of the time of day that it's on anywhere in the world yeah at, at, at a sensible time so if you're in america you can watch it very early in the morning if you are in japan you can watch it late in the evening but it's not in the middle of the night. So it mm. has a natural advantage in that respect geographically. It also is an English-speaking league. And therefore, yeah. unlike the Italian league or the Spanish league, which are very, very big, and German league, they aren't. you can't market it so well to the American audiences. Um, and this is probably what counted against British wrestling in the same way as it didn't count against the Premier League, because... WWF and maybe other American companies that had maybe designs on coming over here saw this as a as a advantage for them because it was English language, whereas they couldn't get the market share in Mexico or in Asia, for example, because yeah. they weren't English speaking. And so when the big money was being pumped into WWE, and in fairness, you could argue, well, Vince came over and stole away the the audience, and he did, but that's exactly what he did to everyone else in America yeah. as well. It's just it so happened that when he came along with all his money and decided to, to go, go into all these markets, he he was English-speaking, and so one of those natural markets was into Britain as opposed to into Mexico, for example, which would have been closer to home. Yeah, that's it. it, it it's the... There are so many advantages to the way that Europe works as well. And you've got things like the European Union makes it a lot easier to tour. You're going into many, many different countries with, with minimal paperwork. There, are, You can see how the expansion happens so quickly. And again, it is like they're just, WWE's just now looking at the idea of opening a Lucha promotion in Mexico. Yeah. And, and, I'm not sure how the AJPW thing is going. They bought out, supposedly bought or bought into All Japan Pro Wrestling to turn it into NXT Japan, essentially, or what would become NXT Japan. Um, but that kind of all got slowed down because of the the COVID, as you can imagine, um, yeah. whether that's still happening or not. And supposedly, send the room was for, well, at least 18 months or a year that Sendai girls would be NXT women in Japan eventually. That's one of the reasons why Maker Satamora signed with 
WWE to wrestle in NXT UK because she still owns Sendai Girls and she must have the most unique deal in wrestling history where she not only gets to wrestle for another promotion that isn't WWE but actually owns it. <laughs> mm. Which is like bizarre, but there you go. So, but yeah, that's it, really. I think we've talked about as much wrestling as we can possibly talk about with this because this has gone all around the world and back again. <laughs> so, we should call it a night. Uh, thank you very much for joining us, Ben. Where can we find you on the internet and where is your new podcast? Yeah, so um, podcasts can be found everywhere. It's called The Random Wrestling Review, and you can find it, as I say, everywhere you get podcasts, pretty much. Um, we, I guess the short way to explain it, 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 I've been trying to find a short way to explain it, and the best I could do was, <laughs> it's kind of like the Totally Football Show, if that was about wrestling, mixed with the BBC Two 1990 sitcom Bottom. Um <laughs> That is how I would describe the podcast in the shortest way I possibly can. Uh, what we ultimately try and do is marry quite deep analysis on WWE, WCW and ECW shows from the past with very juvenile, very um, toilet-based humour. <laughs> and so we've gone into some depth, for example, in the past. Recently, we did WCW Spring Stampede, as you mentioned, James, from 1994 recently. And we did go into some depth about how WCW effectively, not long after that, changed into a completely different thing. And, and when Hulk Hogan came to the company and Jim Duggan arrived and all the rest of it. But at the same time, we've also started off one of our shows with a story about how Tom, one of my co-hosts, shat himself a couple of years ago <laughs> on a trip to Mexico. So that is kind of, we try and marry those two seemingly impossible kind of bed fellows together and that's what our podcast is and as i said you can find it anywhere uh, it's also on twitter so if you want to follow us along uh, at rwr pod uk um you can what i like about it james is that i th i think it's a podcast where you don't necessarily if you didn't want to listen every week you don't have to and you could just pick out the shows that you you kind of might be interested in which is kind of um what for me is kind of good about it is I think there probably are quite a few people who go, yeah, I didn't don't want watching WWE in 2016, so I'm not interested in watching uh, listening to that show. But ECW 1999, yeah, give me a load of that. So that's <laughs> kind of how I kind of hope that people are listening to it. I I really did love the Spring Stampede show because I think Spring Stampede uh, it was 94, wasn't it? Mm. I think maybe my perfect North American wrestling show. I think of all the wrestling North America's ever produced. That may be my favorite show ever. It's <laughs> certainly my favorite WCW show. Yeah, I can well believe that, James. <laughs> uh, I think it's um, I think it's a bit too conservative, personally. But uh, <laughs> no, I, I thought it was really good. I thought it was a really good show. But yeah, that's just it. I mean, I, I think you're not gonna. The point is, is we pick a show at random, and it, we've covered everything from 1988 through to this year. So we've done a bit of all kinds of stuff, and we do stuff from WWE, WCW, ECW, and we probably will look at one or two other promotions in the future. But the point is, is that the idea being that. You may, as you said, as I said, you may not want to listen to us every week going on our juvenile kind of uh, <laughs> sidetracking that we do. But when a good show that you like, or even a bad show that you remember, comes along, uh, you might be interested to uh, to join us. A surprising number of oral sex references. Let's put it that way. <laughs> not a surprising number, but. <laughs> uh, where can we find you on Twitter? Uh, and I'm still at Tink Holloway. Um, so that's my kind of permanent residence on Twitter. I don't tend to um, tweet as much as I once did on there. Um, 
mainly because as I said more of my time now is taken up by the podcast than than we used to be and I I don't you know you only got so much time for so many things um, there is true this, this is this is the thing there is there, is, there are all the things in life other than pro wrestling believe it or not <laughs> <laughs> just about yeah just about just just we can sneak a few things in there okay my name's Joe Shrupini you can find me at show find star on twitter you can find the show Shrupini show on twitter and you can find us on facebook the Troopany show and patreon the Troopany show where you can find us free forever for everyone if you can help us out with that we greatly appreciate it we are going to work on some patreon exclusive content me and christy are coming up with a patreon exclusive series we're going to do one more free episode to fiddle and fix our formats and take feedback from and then we will be doing it as a patreon exclusive series called in the beginning there'll be another episode out of that soon uh, all the usual stuff on this week's uh, Troopany Show podcast. We should have the Wrestling Rewind back. And we'll take care. Uh, have a great time. Thank you very much to Ben. And we'll speak to you soon. Take care. Bye. <laughs>